BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. This is In Our Time from BBC Radio 4 and this is one of the thousand episodes you can find on BBC Sounds and on our website. If you scroll down the page for this edition, you can find a reading list to go with it. I hope you enjoy the programme. Hello, it's an image that once you've seen it stays with you for the rest of your life. This is Death playing chess with the Crusader on the rocky Swedish shore, and it's the opening of Ingmar Bergman's film The Seventh Seal, which from its release in 1957 brought Bergman fame around the world. The Crusader learns he can't beat death, but hopes to prolong this final game for one last act, without yet knowing what that act might be. And we go with him on this journey in a plague-ridden world where you can burn women as witches. With me to discuss the Seventh Seal on our 1,000th edition of In Our Time are Claire Thompson, Professor of Cinema History and Director of the School of European Languages, Culture and Society at the University College London, Laura Hubner, Professor of Film at the University of Winchester, and Jan Holmberg, Director of the Ingmar Bergman Foundation in Stockholm. Jan, we come back to this, but can we spend a moment or two on the opening scene which I've just sketched in? Yes, it's one of those openings, isn't it? The ones that have stayed in the collective cultural memory. Whether you know the entire work or not, you do know the opening, much like the opening sentence of Anna Karenina or the opening bars of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. And in this case, the film proper after the credits opens in blackness. We hear the Dies Irae. Then follows the first image of the film, as if you like, of uh, clouded sky. Soon after an eagle appears and then the music stops and is exchanged for a voiceover as we cut to a shot of uh, this uh, rocky beach and we hear the voiceover quoting from uh, the book of Revelation and when the lamb broke the seventh seal there was silence in heaven for half an hour and then follows a succession of shots of uh, a knight praying or trying to pray a squire sleeping, uh, their horses in the water, and then suddenly a figure dressed in black with a white face appears, and the uh, knight, startled, asks, Who are you? And he replies, I am death. And then they go on playing a game of chess. And that's the first great shock in a good sense. You're not shocked, or, oh, taken back, you're shocked into deeper interest because death is a, is a human being right. a pancake face like a clown and a black cloak like somebody in a horror film but as soon as he says that I think it changed the register of the film completely Absolutely. it is amazing, why is it called the seventh seal? that is from the book of Revelation so, which is quoted there in, right in the beginning and the book of Revelation of course is also called the apocalypse which is what the film is about since it's set during the plague there was a hint already with the eagle, the eagle being the, uh, what do you call it, the attribute of St. John, the alleged writer of uh, the book of Revelations. And it isn't unusual that Bergman should find inspiration in the Bible. No, um, not at all. His father was a very strict Lutheran uh, preacher, preacher. Mm-hmm. Claire Thompson. Um, Bergman is the source of much of what we know about him. He's the source. So we sort of got to beware a little now and then, don't we? 
That's right. Can you tell us about his early life? Yes. Well, as you've just said, we, we think we know a lot about his, his early life and his life generally, in part because there are images and memories from his childhood which turn up in a lot of his films, Fanny, Fanny and Alexander being a, a good case in point. But it's also because he was a, he was a writer. I'm sure we'll hear more about that from, from Jan later on. So we have autobiographies, uh, The Magic Lantern, Images, My Life in Film. We have fictionalised accounts of his parents, his his family life. And then we have accounts of Bergman's life, which which other writers have, have done. Um, there's a, a novel by Alexander Andoril, which came out in 2008, I think, and has been translated into English, called The Director, which fictionalises Bergman's experience of, of making Winter Light. So we need to think of this as layer upon layer of, of myths well, and Let's just pick memories. out one or two things we know about. Let's pick out The Magic Lantern. Mm-hmm that he, he wants a magic lantern for Christmas. He knows about magic lantern, and he desperately wants it. And the parcel arrives, and the parcel supposedly containing the magic lantern goes to his brother. Yes. He remembers that, and that is repeated several times. What did he do then? First, he had to bargain with his brother. He had to give his brother a 100 tin soldiers in exchange for the lantern. And there's, this is right at the start of uh, uh, the magic lantern, his, his autobiography, and... What sticks with me is that he describes in great detail all of the senses that have created his his memory of this encounter with with the lantern. So partly it's about anticipating um, the lantern, um, using it. And then he remembers the smell of of kerosene and the the texture of the the wardrobe, the closet in which he sat to project these images on, on the wall. And he remembers that there is a, a young girl in some kind of national dress in a meadow. And as he starts to, to run the film strip through this little projector, he, uh, he sees her standing up, beginning to move. And there is a, a single line paragraph at the end of that chapter which says, she was moving. That seems to loom, if I can use this cliche, that seems to loom large in his mind mm. from a very early day. And he, he goes off to make get something out of making films. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us about his early experience? He was, by all accounts, a, a rebellious child. His, his family wanted him to go to university and study something respectable. Like he chose literature and never finished. He went off to do his national service and then he started working as a, a playwright and a, a theatre producer in a kind of youth home and started writing scripts, both for, for the stage uh, and then later for films. And it was his first few uh, scripts which um, brought him to the attention of Stina Berman, no relation, who was the head of the uh, manuscript department at Svensk Filmindustri, the big Swedish film company. And she employed him as a kind of script, script doctor to tidy up other people's scripts. But also she encouraged him to develop his, his own writing. There was an incident with his father, which we can't skip, can we? His father knocked him down. Yes. And Bergman then knocked his father down, down. and left the house. That's quite big, isn't it? It, it's it's emblematic of, of that relationship, isn't it? It's a, it's a turning point where he asserts his individuality um, and embarks on his life journey, I suppose we could say. But again, he stages that incident, doesn't he, like, um, like so much else. He has a sense of drama. You don't look very confident about your position in this one. <laughs> I don't necessarily see the distinction between fiction and truth in well, anything that he writes about, his, about that. his life. <laughs> as, he, as he often says, I mean, sometimes the best way to get to the truth 
is by lying. And that, of course, is a man of fiction saying that. I mean, he's a, he's a director and he's a writer. Mm. And so mm. I think uh, he's not necessarily interested in reality, but in truth in a deeper sense than just what was going on. And one of the things about him all the way, he's always doing an awful lot of things. He does a hell of a lot of radio and radio plays, a mm. hell of a lot of films before he hits... Uh, gold dust with the films that other people take a lot of notice of and scripts for other people um, and in those those years through the through the early 40s mid 40s he's he's moving a lot as well between Gothenburg Stockholm Malmö Helsingborg and there are a few marriages along the way as well in the the 40s several uh, children Laura um, let's go back to the beginning in a way for those who haven't seen the film can you just summarize it yes a medieval knight called Antonius Block and his squire have spent the night on a rocky Scandinavian shore, having spent ten years fighting in the Crusades. The figure so we're of, talking about 14th century here. That's right. Yeah. It's approximate, though, because I think some of the history might not be so accurate. Uh, the figure of death appears to the knight and tells him his time is up. About to accept, the knight makes a bargain with death. We'll play a game of chess, he says. As long as I can hold out against you, I stay alive. If I win, I'm free to live. Now the land is ravaged by plague and as they make the knight and the squire make their way towards the knight's castle, they encounter a rich mix of characters, including artists, flagellants led by a fanatical monk, a young woman to be burnt as a witch and a priest who has become a thief. Ravel. Ravel is stealing from the, the plague victims. As well as this, the knight encounters death, who's destined to win by any means. The knight is drawn to a small family of travelling actors called Mia, Joff and their baby Mikhail. And having spent a magical evening with them, eating wild strawberries and fresh milk, the knight's quest shifts. It's a crucial moment from that of more self-interest towards his realising his one meaningful deed, the act of human kindness. Um, that's to save the, the family um, from death's clutches. By the end of the film, everyone apart from the family are summoned by death. At this point, the knight is still fixed in prayer, seeking proof of God's existence. The squire, on the other hand, a rugged disbeliever, is adamant that there's absolutely nothing there beyond the flesh, just emptiness. And then outside in the wilderness from the distance, Yoff witnesses the vision of death with his scythe leading the, the figures in their final dance. And that's the iconic shot of the dance along the hillside, along the hillside silhouetted against yeah. the... They finish shooting. They're in a bus going back to Stockholm. And Bergman saw the light and saw the hill and got everybody out of the bus. And That's including right. those who hadn't been in, hadn't been in the film at all, put them in, and sent them along the hillside with the dance of death. That's right. Apparently, some with assistants joining in and a few tourists yes. are sort of yes. dressed up. Just one of those magical moments. This business of which completely staggered me. He said, "I am death," and I, you believe it. Yes. And you know, it's a man with pancake face, clown face, with a big black cloak. But he, it's a particular sort of conviction in the acting of course very good. Yes. but also in the way that Bergman centres him 
And you know from the beginning, this is the mover of the entire film. In many ways, a very simple film. Yes, it completely works within the fictional world. I mean, there's an irony in the delivery um, from death in in the sense of a, a slight wink of the eye sometimes occasionally in, in his delivery it gets some of the best one-liners through the <laughs> through the, the film Such as. when he draws the black chess piece it says how appropriate don't you think yeah. slightly ironic you got the idea that from the woodcuts that he saw in uh, medieval in, mm. in medieval churches and monasteries that's right um, death is a person that is personified that yes. is an actor it's the way he convinces people that baffles me he said yes. at one stage you take a chair an ordinary chair That's right. you put it on a stage you say this is a throne somebody sits in the throne you say this is a king yes and people believe you absolutely and I think Bergman was as astonished as everyone else thank you very much Jan he made this film in 35 days but it had this idea around for some time bit of an irony he made the film because his comedies <laughs> won him prizes and then he won an award and the Swedish authorities relaxed their stance and said okay you can go away and make this film that you really want to make it was a very tight sc- shooting schedule yeah. but it had to be too because at this time Bergman was extremely prolific. It was probably the time in which he worked the most, and not only worked, as uh, Claire was mentioning, he also had four or five children at at this time by three women. But he was the artistic director of Malmö City Theatre at the time and had been for a couple of years. And I mention this because he not only did the plays that he staged there they were a crucial part uh, as the inspiration for The Seventh Seal, but also that he was working with the same actors. So Max von Sydow, for instance, playing the knight in The Seventh Seal, had played in uh, Cat on a Hot Tin Roof in 1956, for instance, in Bergman's production. And Bibi Anderson played in uh, Strindberg's Eric the Fourteenth. So at this time, Bergman was doing at least two stage productions and one film per year. So in the year of 1957 alone, not only did The Seven Seal come out, but also Wild Strawberries, another of his greatest films. So The Seventh Seal was just one of many things that he was working on at the time. But the origin of the film was a one-act play that Bergman had written a couple of years earlier, because he was also the patron of the acting school of Malmö City Theatre. He uh, wrote a couple of plays for the the aspiring actors to toy with, really. So uh, this play called uh, Wood Painting, again alluding to what you were saying about the uh, uh, medieval iconography, it was uh, a play with a lot of characters from you know medieval iconography, such as uh, a knight, a woman with a child, uh, a squire, a skeleton, and so on, all seeking refuge from the plague. One of the things that's striking about Bergman's work was that there, there became his cast list, a cast list. It was rather like Royal Shakespeare in his early days. They, the same people turned up again and again in different parts, and that was because they were so good. That gave it, what I think, a sort of density. You, you were more inclined to believe them 
uh, for some reason. Is there anything in that? But th- some of the names you mentioned and others, they're in film after film after film. Absolutely, yes. Gunnar Bjornstrand playing yeah. the squire in this film was uh, in almost all of Bergman films in the 50s and 60s. And yes, he had his reliable troupe of actors, much as Shakespeare did. Uh, And so, I mean, we attribute these films to Ingmar Bergman, but it's really a collective effort of all these people. And not to mention the cinematographer, in this case Gunnar Fischer, and many others. So he had these troupe working together, and not only in films, but also in theatres. And he used to joke that he actually made films just to keep the actors busy and paid during the summer when the theatre was closed. Again, in 1957, not only did uh, Max von Sydow appear in both Wild Strawberries and in the main role in The Seventh Seal, he also performed in the title role of Per Gunt, Ibsen's Per Gunt in Malmö City Theatre in, in Bergman's uh, staging, where he was on stage for five consecutive hours. Well, it worked, didn't it? Oh, yes, absolutely, yeah. Claire, Claire Thompson, um, can we talk about one of the main influences on Bergman, the Phantom Carriage from 1921? Why was that, what was it, and why was it such a big influence? It's strange to think that the Phantom Carriage uh, had its premiere when Bergman was only two two years old, just a just a toddler. It was the the blockbuster, <laughs> I suppose, of its time of uh, New Year, nineteen. Yeah, 19- blockbuster. Yeah. The Antonius Sorry. blockbuster. <laughs> New, so it was uh, premiered at New Year 1921 and it was the first film that had been uh, made in the new uh, film studios at Rosunda. So uh, also a, a, a kind of um, turning point for s- Swedish filmmaking in that sense. It's a ghost story, it's a melodrama, it's a kind of folk tale and it was based on a novella uh, of 1912 by Selma Lagerlöf, uh, who had been the first woman to to win the Nobel Prize in in literature. Uh, So there's a lot of prestige associated with this production. What caught Bergman's attention particularly there? He idolised the the director and also the the lead actor, uh, Victor Hörström. Apologies to Jan and to Swedes everywhere for my pronunciation. Hörström he had encountered uh, when he was making his, when he was directing his first film and uh, Hörström had been around to sort of put a hand around his shoulder and, and reassure him. But Hörström also had the, the reputation as, as, as being the one of the greatest filmmakers of his time. For one thing, he manages to adapt the extremely complex narrative structure of the original novella onto the screen, um, which was pioneering in its day. The film is also pioneering in terms of its um, technological achievements. It, it used double exposure to, to give a sense of the, the ghostly carriage. But I think it's probably also the, the themes in, in The Phantom Carriage which haunted Bergman. There are lots of red thread running between that film and The Seventh Seal, like the, the sense of a, a quest to be, to be a better person, to, to find God there is an underlying theme which both films share and, and that is the sense of impending doom. The Seventh Seal has the bubonic plague circulating as backdrop but in The Phantom Carriage it's, uh, it's tuberculosis which was a, a huge problem at the time all over the world and, and not least in, in Sweden. It was killing a lot of young people. The novella had actually been uh, commissioned by the National Campaign Against Tuberculosis to be a kind of educational text it's also a moralising film in a way. It's 
trying to educate people about their social responsibility. And he took up on this on all these points. He's on record. There's a, a video on YouTube somewhere where he claims to watch this film at least once a year. Yeah. So I think he knew it um, at a, a cellular level. We sort of skipped something uh, here. Quite a lot of Swedish young men and women up to early years were sent to Germany and uh, Bergman was among them. And as far as we can make out, he conceived a strong passion in favour of Hitler. Is that right? And what 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 do you make of it? I know that it was something that he felt so awful about later on, once he'd realised... Well, why did you... Later on's one thing, but why did you do it in the first place? He went out there... I mean, there's different accounts. I think it sort of said he was 16 in the autobiography to stay with a German family. And there he kind of witnessed the, the fervour and got whipped up within that. But afterwards came back that claim that this was why he wouldn't really want to get involved in politics thereafter because sort of seeing how you know a whole society can get swayed by the charisma of a political figure in that way i think it's extremely complicated though because uh, bergman states in his uh, autobiography in 1987 so more than 40 years after the fact uh, how he was infatuated by hitler and so on but uh, if we go to the contemporary sources from uh, during the war, uh, we see another thing. For instance, Bergman was staging Macbeth in 1941 at Helsing City Theatre, uh, where uh, a staging which Bergman himself claimed was to be seen as an allegory uh, of the tyranny of Hitler. So it seems that although Bergman does state in The Magic Lantern that he was uh, uh, rooting for Hitler uh, during the entire war, in fact he wasn't Mm -hmm. at the time. So again, like Claire was saying before, Bergman is... uh, Well, the the question of uh, fiction and of of, uh, deception and of uh, uh, truth and lies is always there in Bergman. You should never trust him, (laughs) is what I'm trying to say. That's a pity. Can we talk about the connection with you, Laura, between the figure of death and Bergman's view of religion? Yes, well, there was, I was thinking about the confession scene, and I think that one of those that, that's a moment that's really fascinating because there's this critique of organised religion, but the way that that's filmed is such that we know beforehand that it's death in disguise. And you mean the confessor? The, the confessor. That's, yeah, that's death in disguise. Yeah, that's right. Um, so he's dis- disguised as as the priest um, during the confession scene, and we have that mo- that moment when Antonius Block, the knight, is leading his heart out, asking what's there, if there's any proof in God's existence, and then gives away his tactic of with the bishop and the and knight. The mm. And what happens then is we witness death turning so we can see the face and so there's that sort of chilling moment and then the camera cuts to inside the confessional so we are there in with death and sort of complicit to some degree in listening to this confession religion is of course it's a huge topic in all of Bergman's work but it's almost always as as I see it at least used as a metaphor or I mean man's relationship to God is Rather, I mean, even though in the case of the seventh seal, the knight is asking whether there is a god or not, what he is really asking is, is there communication between people? So it's much more 
horizontal, if you like, than vertical. Uh, of Bergman is not only asking that question, whether there is a God or not. I think it's almost irrelevant to him. It's, uh, it's rather whether we get through our fellow human beings or, or if we can communicate with them rather than with God. And that is hard enough, Bergman tells us, and uh, as we all know. <laughs> yeah. What did you make of that? If I could pick up on something that I read in the preface to one of his unrealised productions yeah. where he addresses uh, quite explicitly his own attitude to, to, to God, to religion. This was supposed to be a, a six-part television series on, on the life of Jesus. And he says in the preface, um, I have no faith at all. He was writing in the, the mid-70s, the mid roughly. I have no faith at all, but I can relate to Jesus as, as a man with, with a life, a very you know, a human figure uh, with, with senses. That, that is how I can relate um, to, to divinity. That may not reflect what he was feeling and thinking in, in the mid-1950s, of course. It's a bit later, but to me that's... It expresses something about the attachment that we feel in the seventh seal to to the body, to corporeal life, that we are here to, to enjoy it and to smell the breeze and, and to meet people we love and to eat strawberries and, and, and so on. And, and those, those bigger existential questions might be somehow secondary to that. I don't know. He, I mean, he as an advertisement for religion, the, religion gets naught out of twenty, doesn't it? I mean, the the young woman who's about to be burned to death for mm. we 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 intimate for nothing at all, and the knight passes her. You know, he's on his horse and he leans over, and he's picked out something out of his pocket. This one assumes are sort of pills or medicine stuff to take away the pain. She's going to a fire, and the flagellants are there, and the fires are going. Religion. Uh, doesn't get a good press, is it? No, it's religion's fault, but it's also culture's fault, yeah. of course. Sure. Can we turn to the, the circus, the little troupe of circus entertainers? Uh, shall we start with you, Laura? There are three of them, well, father and mother and child. They're integral, they're, they are playful figures. And there is the, um, just about, just over halfway through the film, there is the, the, the wild strawberry sequence um, and it comes just before the witch burning scene and just after the inn scene, the scene in the inn where Joff has been mercilessly humiliated and asked, you got to dance like a bear etc. Um, so this respite from the horror is very much needed. The knight asks Joff to join them through the forest rather than go to Elsinore where the plague is rife and then they sit for a moment in the twilight with the family on the grass, the baby asleep, Joff playing his lute in a playful, joyous atmosphere. Mia brings wild strawberries from the hillside. They smell them. She teases Joff. Their simple lifestyle is illustrated by the aerial shot of Mia, played by Bibi Anderson wonderfully, um, lying on the ground. She's just saying one day is like another. So we get that sense of that that's very simple lifestyle. They share their bowl of fresh milk. And the knight says that he will remember this hour of peace, the strawberries and the milk, the lute, their words, and he'll bear this memory in his hands. This will be a sign, one of great content. The scene has been interpreted as a communion between humans with the humanist sharing of the milk bowl but at its core, it's a reminder to make the most of the moment, of cherishing the moment. And the death mask hangs on the caravan behind this idyllic family setting. 
and the knight must resume his game of chess. So life and time is short. But in effect, mm. the knight gets these three people off death. However temporarily, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Jan, what do you, what would you say? I, I completely agree with you, Laura, that this scene is so is so crucial in the film, uh, and in it's uh, and it's one of those moments that you were referring to, Claire, where the metaphysical turns into a physical, corporeal sense of uh, you know being in the world, as it were. On the other hand, though, uh, Joff and Mia is clearly allegories of. Joseph and Mary, and the son of uh, baby Jesus, of course. And uh, the wild strawberries and milk can be seen as uh, an allegory of the Holy Communion. So although this is uh, very physical, very real, very unreligious, if you like, it is still packed with religious imagery and Christian attributes and so on. So uh, Fairly doomed, though. Yeah, Shall we talk briefly about his, his technique, the use of, starting with you, the use of long shots and close-ups, and then we'll talk to you about lighting, if you don't mind. Sure, yeah. Well, Bowman is famous for his use of close-ups, uh, but... When he said the human face is the most interesting thing you can possibly film. Exactly, yes. Mm. That, uh, the epitome of cinema is the human face. And this was really the time when he started using that or working with close-ups. Uh, he does that to a much more, to, to a much bigger extent in, uh, in later films such as Persona or The Passion of Anna uh, in the 1960s. But already in The Seventh Seal and in Wild Strawberries you see long close-ups of faces but they are intermingled with long shots uh, often in silhouette for instance the dance of death scene at the end of the film um, but also in the openings from the uh, the shots of uh, of the shoreline what do you think he's achieving by that it's a formal or aesthetic way of telling what he's also telling in the script if you like i mean if as i suggested before his films are all about understanding, getting close to other people, or trying to, often failing uh, in his case. Uh, the close-up can be seen as uh, a way of abridging that gap that's always there between people, uh, certainly in, in Bergman's rather bleak universe, and uh, with uh, an absent god and so on. So the human face can al- almost be seen as an icon, uh, as a something that will... Uh, Fill the, fill the void, if you like. Mm. Oh. Claire, I'll give you an early warning. You might talk about lighting. He, he took great care with his cameraman, and lighting mattered to him a lot. Can you give us one or two instances in The Seventh Seal where it shows that it mattered a lot? The Seventh Seal seems to take us through two quite different worlds, different dimensions, different spaces. Uh, one of them is is the seascape, the landscape um, that, that Jan has, has just been talking about. And there we see that really intense quality of Nordic light. I think it's interesting to compare and contrast The Seventh Seal and Summer with Monica, two really different films, of course. But they they are both, at least in part, set out on the Swedish coastline. And the, the, the film strip seems to be infused with um, a, a kind of light that you wouldn't see anywhere else. And, and the cinematographer for both those films, of course, was Gunnar Fischer, who could manage this really well. But then in The Seventh Seal, we've got these very, very intimate moments. And it is about facial close-ups. Um, but they're also often fascinating because they seem to adopt a kind of 
very in- intimate theatrical space where we might have three layers. So we might have the the knight confessing uh, in the foregrounds, and then we might have a, a, a grill, and then we, of course we have death in the confession booth behind coexisting in a space that doesn't seem naturalistic or (laughs) geometrical even at all it gets back I think to the idea that you just touched on Jan which was the um, the, 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 well medieval art where there is no such thing as perspective as as we would recognise it we're we're seeing seeing texture, we're seeing light shades, we are uh, we're seeing faces but, but perhaps not human faces as we would recognise them and then those two spaces come together quite early in the film with that iconic shot that you were talking about earlier where the knights and death are have started to play chess on the beach we see the sky we see the sea part of the real world but then in the foreground they are lit in the most extraordinary way and they both seem to have key lighting on their faces which is impossible because then, as Gunnar Fischer himself said, there there must be two suns in the sky. Mm. But if death is appearing there in human form, then fine, we can have two suns. Mm. Laura, can I come to this comment of his? Again, we have to beware his comments. Yes. Uh, that um, making this film helped him address his long-standing fear of death. Just having death appear and and be there walking and talking and, and actually characterising this figure was a bold move and actually enabled him to address some of those questions and to relay those doubts and to put those questions to him. There's this, this the sense that he's moving from one time of his life into a new way of thinking and so sort of starting to move towards a greater sense of rationalism ridding himself of the earlier childhood faith that he calls a naive belief in salvation. And you think he did this? I think it did that job temporarily and I think that from that point on he starts to have that slowly move towards that sense of acceptance and we see in his later films that sort of paring down in, in style and we start to, he starts to move away from the symbolism and start to just look at human relations between people so it's fewer characters relating to each other but I think it always stays with him and in terms of the biography I mean later on in life he talked about holding out to see Ingrid his wife again after death and there was a a kind of repartee between him and Max von Sydow who plays the knight in in the seventh seal where later on they're saying that if one of us goes first I'll come back and give you I'll I'll, I'll show you some signs that there's something beyond and um, Max von Sydow sort of said um, he's shown me some signs that there is something after death but that that didn't actually give away um, divulge what what that was between them but again I think there's this sort of trickery there in those dialogues really yeah Jan um, we're getting towards the end of the programme but one or two things this was made in 1956 this is just before around about the time the great development of French cinema and one could say of European cinema all the films we saw well I did I was very lucky to go to a town which had this uh, cinema which showed nothing but what we called foreign films in those days so the, the great burst forward was that um, and he became a, a sort of hero and tutory figure in that didn't he yes at least in the beginning of yes. the French New Wave, Godard and Truffaut and Chabrol and the others, uh, they were 
they were absolutely loving films like uh, Summer with Monica and uh, Summer Interlude and Bergman's early stuff. At this time, though, they it sort of shifted because it seems that Bergman was a tad too classical for their taste. Uh, he was, uh, for instance, the what Claire was talking about before, about the, the cinematography and the lighting and the uh, the artificialness of of uh, some of Bergman's uh, scenes were not to the taste of uh, the new wave people. So what was crucial, of course, was that Bergman was one of those filmmakers that were hailed as auteurs, as... Uh, in absolute control of their medium, along with others like Kurosawa and Fellini and others. But Bergman was certainly among the first to be recognised as such, and that was a huge inspiration in its own right, of course. And uh, and it actually... And Bergman was not solely responsible, but he was a key figure in cinema being the art form par excellence in the 1960s and 70s. So... So, yes, Bowman was uh, absolutely crucial. Yes, and imitated by all sorts of people, including Woody Allen. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yes, got everything sure. right except the core idea. Can you... We've begun to mention the reaction of the films at the time. How's, how's his reputation drifted on in the last 50, 60 years? Shall I start with you, Karen? He, uh, we, we've talked about how that late 50s period is, is a, a turning point and the French new the, the reputation that he gains through the French New Wave is, is is part of that. And then there are those much more serious films in the in the sixties, the, the trilogy in the early sixties, Persona in nineteen sixty six, of course. And you start to see him being talked about in well, in, the, in the States, all over the world, as a very serious existentialist auteur. There is uh, a period in the early 1970s which illustrates, though, that he didn't continue to get his way and make anything that he wanted to to make, where there is a, there's a cluster of unfinished, unrealised projects ranging from what seemed to have been, what might have been a, a pornographic film, The Petrified Prince. Uh, there was the ambition to make uh, a musical, uh, the, the Merry Widow, featuring Barbara Streisand, which um, never got off the ground. And then he he he's getting older, of course, and and, and so he he starts to become the grand old man of Swedish cinema, being seen to overshadow the the younger generation that's that's coming through. There are other high points in the seventies. There's um, scenes from a marriage, which was recently remade. Uh, there's there's Fanny and Alexander, and then a very long period through the eighties where he gives up filmmaking well, but he starts to write. Isn't a bad late film, is it? It's, uh... Oh, yes, yeah. yes, so definitely. there's no diminution of powers there. Absolutely not. In um, those late films. But then he seems to want to develop his, his writing. Yeah. What would you say about this? I think, well, picking up on what Claire just said about uh, his uh, focusing on his writing in his uh, later years, I think that Bowman is still unrecognised as a writer. And uh, his works in the 1990s... Uh, where he wrote things like uh, The Best Intentions, Sunday's Children... That was and for his son, wasn't it? Yes, and all these were directed by others than himself. Yeah. Than, than himself. But uh, as books, as readings, they are absolutely brilliant, uh, regardless of what you think of the, the films or the television series that uh, others made. Bergman was, at this point, in the 90s... Uh, 
showing himself to be an absolutely terrific writer as well. And I think now, when uh, quite... I mean, Bergman is... Uh, Claire mentioned that uh, Seas from Marriage has recently been re- remade, but we also see a tendency where... Bergman is being staged in theatres all over the world and uh, he is now being performed almost as much as uh, August Strindberg. <laughs> and so it seems that Bergman has been rebranded, as it were, from film director to playwright. And uh, I think uh, that serves him rather well. I think a lot of his films are actually written as if they're plays. They're Absolutely, written, yes. They're yes. written in the, the way of scenes, the way of few characters, the way of the encounters. But finally to you. What do you, what's your assessment of him these days? He's had a phenomenal influence and in inspiration on a, a, a vast range of filmmakers. So mm. we've got Lars von Trier, Del Toro, uh, Martin Scorsese. Um, they're all talking about how the, the films have, have inspired them. And what is the them. thing that inspires them? What do you get out of actors, or the way he directs it, or the stories? What most inspires them, do you think? It's, it's what he gets out of the actors, yeah. and I think, it, and that was one of the things that I think it, when he hit the US, probably around 1960, um, with the, the big fame at that point of time, with this discussion around the you know having the freedom to to work cliched or not but be beyond the bounds of of hollywood to work very closely with the actors yes. and they've they forged this very strong relationship he often worked with the same actors again and again yeah. and um and, and there's this this dynamic of him being both very controlling and controlled and wanting the ritual so the ritual of the everyday working life but at the same time being very passionate and so that magic that you talked about earlier that happening spontaneously is is another aspect and I think you can possibly only get that I mean you see images of him very being very physical very tactile or actually hands on to the the actors positioning them in, in the way that they needed to perform um, but, but at the same time the actors always spoken very warmly of Bergman Yes, he could be quite vile <laughs> and quite didactic, um, but at the same time, there's there is that warmth, the passion, and I think there was always that fear of of that running out. You know, wanting each film to be the best and the last, just putting everything into that, the passion into that that filmmaking. Thank you very much to Laura Hubner, Claire Thompson, and. Jan Homburg and to our studio engineer Emma Hearth next week the economic consequences of the peace John Maynard Keynes famous attack on the Versailles Treaty for the ruin it would inevitably bring on Germany and on the wider world thank you for listening and the In Our Time podcast gets some extra time now with a few minutes of bonus material from Melvin and his guests Okay, let's go. The question, the only question I have to ask all of you is, what did you not say you'd like to have said? Do you want to start? It's not something that's discussed much, but the comedy is a key ingredient. We see that in the pairing of the characters, um, firstly between the knight and death, and there's the pairing of the knight and his squire, so the squire offsets the knight's intensity. And it's apparent in the structuring of the scenes as well. So when the knight undergoes a soul-searching confessional, the squire chats to an artist painting a fresco in the church. When the painter shows the squire awful images of abscesses, 
caused by the plague, they end up getting drunk. And the squire sends up philosophy saying, no matter which way you turn, you have your rump behind you. And they both keep repeating the word rump, rump behind you. Yes, I, I'd like to uh, uh, share something of, of, from uh, uh, our archives of the Ingmar Bourbon Foundation, because it's uh, Bourbon saved almost all of his writings and not only his writings by the way uh, he also we also have some 10,000 letters to and from Bergman including your correspondence with him I, I wrote some photocopies of it if you'd like <laughs> uh, by the way uh, but we can follow the creative process from the very first draft of the seventh seal to the finished shooting script and as such we can see how it's evolving and uh, coming back to Bergman's l- literary qualities, his qualities as a writer I think, for instance in this this most famous dialogue in the beginning of the film we can see how Bergman uh, in, in it the uh, uh, death is asking the knight, are you prepared and in the first draft Bergman has the knight answering I'm not prepared but uh, in the end uh, and as we hear in the film he sa- actually says, my body is afraid, I am not which is kind of strange, because the question was, are you prepared? And he answers that uh, my body is afraid. Now, the thing is, in Swedish, the words for afraid and prepared are almost the same. Afraid is red and prepared is bered. So Bohm must have noticed this in his writing. It's, it's a sort of a pun going on there. Uh, and also, because uh, Bohm is so acutely aware of the phonetics and so, and the metric of his lines so for instance he's often opting for uh, an iambic rhythm so for instance in Swedish uh, the death's line is är du beredd are you prepared är du beredd so dadam dadam and the knight answers min kropp är rädd inte jag själv dadam 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 if he had answered correctly, as it were, my body is prepared or something like that, the rhythm would be off. So it seems that Berman is sacrificing semantics over uh, phonetics, or at least he is, uh, uh, you know, he's uh, toying with the poetic qualities of his language. What did you miss saying? I think I missed a connection between the phantom carriage, to go back to that, and, and the mid-50s, and, and that is the question of why... Victor Hörström, the director that Bergman so admired, why does he turn up in Wild Strawberries, the other film made in 1956, and, and not The Seventh Seal, where he would almost have been more suited in a way? As death, yes. As death, <laughs> wouldn't that have been fun? <laughs> um, so it, 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 that's fascinating to me because that kind of connects those two films, sure. uh, which, as you said, Jan, Jan he's making uh, in in 1956. But but Hörström turns up as the the, the questing older academic <laughs> and, and not death. Uh, the other connection to be made is that in the Phantom Carriage, the person who drives the carriage looks very much like death, uh, with the, the hood and the pale face. But he's not death, he's just an emissary of, of death who has to drive the carriage for a year, should someone die at midnight on, on New Year's Eve. But but iconographically, the, the likeness is is startling. So there's, there's an intertextuality there between mm. this inexplicable moving figure of, of death in the seventh seal and the 
the carriage driver. Um, when you say this, do you find you find it as if you rather find him rather sympathetic, Death? In in the seventh seal, yeah, I do. I mean, you were talking earlier about how it it works, and it's impossible to explain why it works. For me, I think it's 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 the humour mm. of that moment that somehow convinces us that this figure is to be taken seriously because he is human. He's, there's he's also funny. something with his voice, isn't it? Mm. I mean, he has a tenor, a, a high pitched yeah. voice, whereas Max von the the actor playing Bengt Ekerud, whereas Max von Sydow has this, you know, schooled baritone. Mm. Uh, the uh, death, you would you would think that death would have a you know a bass or something like that, but mm. uh, he's actually adubered. when he says perhaps there is nothing there the first time I heard that I thought that quite bland but actually there's there's almost a heartfeltness in in saying that as well so there's I think the death character has quite a lot of depth (laughs) yeah well we all agree that death has quite a lot of depth (laughs) (laughs) and it's hard to understand (laughs) well thank you all very much in Our Time with Melvin Bragg is produced by Simon Tillotson. Who's in the news for all the wrong reasons? Step inside the world of crisis management and so-called spin doctors with me, David Yelland. And me, Simon Lewis. In our new podcast from BBC Radio 4, we tell you what's really going on behind the scenes as the week's biggest PR disasters unfold. Simon and I used to be on opposite sides of a story in the media when I was editor of The Sun and Simon was communications secretary to the late Queen. Now, we've teamed up to share everything we know about what's keeping those big stories in and out of the press. As the great philosopher king Mike Tyson himself once said, everyone has a plan until they're punched in the mouth. And there's a lot of people punching people in the mouth in this town. Listen and subscribe to When It Hits the Fan on BBC Sounds.